Today on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, uh, Scott Radley filling in for Scott Thompson. We'll be talking to the mayor about a request from big city mayors for the provincial and federal governments to help out with the revenue shortfalls they're experiencing. We're talking about tuition. Should university students get a break on their tuition because they don't get the full university experience? We'll talk about Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield possibly fighting at a combined age of 110. And we'll talk about all kinds of other stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Here's the best news. We know that the governments of all orders, of all levels, have been working hard to try and walk us through this situation. But we've learned today just how hard and how creative the federal government is getting. Take a listen to what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today said the federal government is doing to try and navigate this COVID situation. Uh, who get to actually be there in person. But two more virtual seances, uh, virtual sessions. Virtual seances, apparently, is what our federal government is now testing. I don't know if this is helpful. I don't know, but, uh, you know, try something, I guess. Virtual seances. Virtual seances. And, and I mean, I know he didn't pronounce it quite right, but there you go, virtual seances. Uh, let me bring in the mayor of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks for doing this today. I'm well. At least he's not speaking moistly anymore, which is good. The, that is true. Has the city of Hamilton had any virtual seances yet? No, no. And, uh, you know, there may be, maybe there are some in our community that are doing that. But, <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, we uh, everyone meditating and reflecting on where we are and what we're doing is probably not a bad thing. I, I don't know if that qualifies as a seance, everybody doing that at the same time. But um, certainly we've all done that and been somewhat in perspective uh, the last little while for sure. Well, uh, we're talking, by the way, to Mayor Fred Eisenberger, who I believe is talking to us from his home, which has now become the most famous kitchen in all of Hamilton for all the videos that he's done, with Mrs. Eisenberger um, uh, getting quite famous at washing dishes, apparently. I, a couple times I've turned on TV, and uh, I'm hoping the mayor takes a few turns at that, too. Uh, you know what? It's my daily chore, for sure, so it just happens <laughs> to be uh, her turn, so we take turns. Let me, let me get my song request in. Can I do that? Absolutely. Who fighters? Times like these. Okay, that'll be up next. We'll we'll have that up next. Uh, Let's talk about this uh, story that came yesterday. I believe it was yesterday. It was this week anyway. I think it was yesterday that the big city mayors have now gone to the written to the federal and provincial governments asking for relief. It's called the Large Urban Mayors Caucus of Ontario. And we know, uh, we've heard uh, from you and others that the city of Hamilton is something like $23 million in the hole or anticipated that amount because of lost revenues. Um, you extrapolate that across all the big cities of this province. Uh, it's a lot of money that cities are in the hole. What does this mean? What are you, a- I mean, are you asking for the higher levels of government to cover all of it or some of it? Or what does this request mean? No, I think what we're asking for, Scott, is to have that dialogue. So, you know what, uh, we, we've got a, a bit of a finger-pointing exercise going on. The federal government says, well, you know, you're creatures of the province, so talk to the province. And the province says, you know what, you've had a relationship with the federal government, and they've got the deep pockets, so they need to be looking after this. And we're saying, listen, let's, let's just three levels of government sit down and have a conversation about how we can manage this. Because, you know, we're as much a part of the economy as, uh, as anything, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're bleeding, uh, you know, uh, uh, added costs and we're bleeding revenue. The $23 million was just an original estimate for, you know, up to the, uh, the end of month of May. If we project out another three months where we're still going to be somewhat in flux, 
probably another uh, $25 million, and that's just for Hamilton. And so if you look across the country, Toronto's estimate is somewhere in the $1.2 billion mark. Uh, so we're saying, look, we, we also need help. We, uh, we, uh, our, our, our only option is to, to look at dramatic cuts in services. And when we, when we say that, you know, right now, all of our services, other than fire, paramedics, and, uh, and uh, police, uh, are, are basically shuttered. I mean, we have, you know, people working offline, uh, on, uh, online, I should say, through our uh, city hall services. But all of our rec centers are closed. All of our amenities are closed. Uh, if we're talking about cuts in services, we're basically talking about cuts in services on the police, fire, paramedics, frontline services that are so desperately needed. And that's, I don't think anybody wants to go there. And uh, the other option is to tax. Uh, that's the only other option we have. So when we're talking about $50 million, let's say, that, that amounts to a 7 or 8% tax increase right off the get-go before we even deal with our ongoing increases in terms of cost. So those are unmanageable numbers, and it, it, it basically gets laid on the, in the laps of the very people that both the province and the federal government are trying to help support uh, in, through this, uh, this pandemic exercise. And that is, I mean, clearly that's a problem and clearly that's a number that no one wants to hear. And um, I don't think anyone looks at this and laughs at what's going on or scoffs at it. The other side of it, though, is that we always hear there's one taxpayer. And so ultimately, if the city taxpayers have to pay it or you have to pay it through your provincial taxes because they've given us money or the federal government has given it, is it not ultimately basically the same thing? Well, yes and no. I mean, the uh, the ability for for us, we we can't run a deficit, so you know our our ability to uh, to to manage this number is is only on either to cut services or go to the tax base. Uh, the federal government has, and the provincial governments have a totally different mandate, and they uh, they are they have deeper pockets. Uh, they have the much greater ability to borrow money, have much 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 reduced costs, and so the ability for them to help municipalities in that way uh, is. Uh, is beneficial from just just the, from the borrowing power perspective. Uh, having said that, uh, we we don't have those deep pockets. The uh, the province is saying we're not as deep as the federal government is, and uh, and currently, you know, uh, every tax dollar that's collected in this country, fifty percent of it already goes to the federal government, forty percent goes to the uh, province, ten percent stays in municipalities, and with that, we're expected to run our big cities and all the services that, that it provides, which I think is a, is a funding formula that we've argued for quite some time isn't sustainable. So this, this you know, complete cap-in-hand approach for projects, for operating funds, for capital projects that need to replace or renew our, our uh, sewage treatment systems or our, our sewers or our water mains or our roads, all are reliant on federal funding, but we have no predictable federal and provincial funding source that we can turn to and say this is coming to us and then we can plan forward on that basis so we're arguing a number of things we're arguing yes we need your short-term help but we also need to look for more sustainable funding sources for municipalities that uh, is, is a little better than going to the feds in the province cap in hand and depending on what the political stripe is whether or not you're going to be successful so going to both levels of government uh, i mean certainly you make the case for why to do it on the other hand, we heard this week that the federal debt may hit a trillion dollars after this year. They, they, it's very possible they'll run a $300 billion deficit this year. Uh, we know the provincial debt and deficit is what it is. Um, so when the mayors, when the big city mayors write this letter and make this request, is it a Hail Mary or do you really believe that there is still money there to be given? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, uh, their borrowing power is significant. They're uh, they're doing everything, and rightfully doing everything they can to help uh, small, small and medium and large businesses and and employees in our communities stay solvent. They want to preserve the economy to the best degree possible. That's exactly what they need to do. They have no choice but to to support that, uh, and then start looking at uh, at stimulus uh, opportunities to kickstart the employment opportunities. So when we're looking at those issues. Uh, employment opportunities come from a lot of municipal projects that can help put people back to work when it comes to re- replacing roads and sewers and everything that we already have in our capital projects. So our argument is multifold. It's give us some short-term assistance, and then when you're looking at stimulus, look at the capital programs that municipalities already have in place, kickstart those to get our economy going again with uh, lots of employment opportunities. And then, you know, the long-term debt, uh, obviously has to be paid for and dealt with, and that uh, will be done on a global basis. So you're 100% right. But there's no avoiding this bill. Uh, that is going to come due, and it's going to come out of the taxpayers' pockets one way or the other. But, you know, think of, think of you know, whether or not this government had any choice but to help support this economy or just let it ride and, and watch it collapse before our eyes. And certainly no one is uh, interested in having that happen. And so I think the federal and provincial governments have done exactly the right thing. Uh, on the short term, and then over the long term, that bill has to be paid, and we'll figure out a way to do it. Uh, you mentioned stimulus, and I mean, it's it's an interesting thing, because I know you um, you did an interview with the Chamber of Commerce, with Keenan Lewis, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things you said was, yeah, there's the LRT that you're hoping is still going to happen, uh, but there's mm-hmm. other stimuli that should hopefully be coming to get the economy going. Again, I, I just, I, I wonder at the end of this, when the federal and provincial government finance ministers sit down and look at their books, if they don't say, sure, we'd love to help everybody get everything going, but holy cow, it's unbelievable the amount of money we're in debt, where you can't do any of that stuff now. Well, I don't, I don't think we're, at, we're in that scenario. I mean, I think Canada is, uh, is, has got a pretty strong uh, you know, balance sheet overall. Its GDP to debt ratio is, uh, is, is probably one of the better ones in the G7 countries. So, you know, when you, when you look at it, you know, debt, debt isn't always bad uh, as long as you have the revenue to support it. And, and so the trick is going to be to ensure that the, there's, a, there's a reasonable employment numbers to help support the debt. Every time there's a, uh, a project done in the in the municipality, whether it's a road project or, you know, or you know any kind of project that employs people, there's a, there's an income tax portion to that, both on the federal and provincial side. So there's a return on investment that they get as a result of stimulating that employment. That does not happen to municipalities. We we just have costs. We don't have direct stimulus return on investment, although we get the projects done in our municipalities. So you can't ignore the revenue picture. So every time the uh, the government uh, uh, introduces a stimulus program, they're they're calculating a, a return on investment back into the tax coffers that is uh, as a result of all the income tax, the provincial sales taxes, all the taxes that come with it, uh, get returned back to those two levels of government. So that's a calculation they're going to continue to make. And I would say that uh, on an economic stimulus basis, that's a calculation that uh, they have to factor in so that, uh, you know, it's not all just money going out. It's also money coming back in. Okay, uh, you, you sound very much like an optimist, and that's good. I don't think we want to have people that are all pessimistic uh, running things. Uh, but, mm-hmm. I mean, let's let's say, for example, that when, this, uh, when the governments, the two higher levels of government, look at this letter from the big city mayors, they say one of two things. They say either, okay, we can help you, but we can't cover it all, or yeah. we can't help you at all. 
Uh, what happens then if either of those two are the answers? Well, and then when, when we get to deal with next year's budget, uh, we're, we've got some very, very difficult choices to make. And in uh, those difficult choices will lend itself to either, you know, uh, you know, furloughing capital projects or, uh, you know, cutting services dramatically and, uh, and uh, increasing taxes or all of the above. I mean, obviously, those are the options that we're left with. And if we get no assistance at all, then uh, obviously the local taxpayer is going to get uh, you know, either dramatic changes in the service levels that we have. And, 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 and when I say service levels, you know, cutting, cutting rec centers, that's already been done. That's already furloughed right now. No, none of that is operating. And so uh, that, that's not an expense or, or, or a cost center that we can continue to cut. Other cuts will come in the more dramatic areas like uh, uh, paramedics, firefighting, police. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there aren't too many options. Those are the higher cost uh, items in any event other than the capital projects that we're going to do going forward. So we have to look then at restricting all of those, those areas, and that's going to dramatically change the, uh, the outcomes in our communities. And I'm not sure that that's going to help the economy at all. It's actually counterintuitive to, to helping stimulate the economy. That actually would be a retraction on the municipal side. And if every municipality across the country does that, that, that works right against economic stimulus. It does not promote getting people to work it does not promote uh, keeping people employed it does not promote uh, you know getting our economy back on its feet so it's uh it's it's the wrong choice to make in my view and uh, and yes we want to be part of the solution and certainly we have some resources to be able to help with that but we also want to ensure that we uh, we are part of the solution to help restore the economy not helping cities or causing us to retract is it going to work right against that Mayor Fred Eisenberg, appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this today. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are students now who are saying, listen, if I don't get to have the full university experience, I don't want to pay the full amount. If I'm going to go to university and my university means online, not on campus, no parties, no events, no sports, no social life, no res, none of that, no clubs, no whatever, then why am I paying full price? It's an interesting idea. I don't know about the merits of it. But as I say right now, there are students in university who have publicly made their, I'm not sure if the word is demands yet, requests so far leading, I'm sure, um, saying, look, A, all the stuff I just said, and B, uh, I'm not wanting to pay full price for bigger, less personal classes with professors who they say aren't trained to teach this way. And some are even raising the question of, are we paying for an education when we go to university or are we simply paying to get a mark that we can then take to an employer? So are they right? Are these students right to raise this? Or are they merely angling to save a few bucks? James Skidmore is a University of Waterloo professor who is an expert in online teaching. He joins us now. Uh, Dr. Skidmore, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, you're welcome. Nice to to be with you. So when you hear this and you hear some students who are now saying, look, we're going to be uh, paying for something we don't get, do, do you think these arguments have any merit? Uh, not, not entirely. You first have to ask yourself the question, what does tuition pay for? And the university, for example, at the University of Waterloo, tuition covers about 60 to 65% of the, of the 
cost of, of, of the university's budget. That's the, the, uh, the revenue side. But on the expenses side, about 70% of the university's budget is uh, goes to salaries. Those are salaries of instructors and professors. Those are salaries of student advisors, uh, student success coaches. Those are the salaries of um, um, mental health and other health professionals who uh, support student uh, wellness. There's a variety of things like that. And so I think the I think the better question to, to ask is why do we why do we assume that online teaching and learning will be of a lower quality than in classroom? It's a great question. And let me let me let me break down the two things you just said, and I want to go down that path sure. for sure. Because you mentioned two things. You mentioned the salaries and the cost, and that certainly is something yep. we'll get to in a moment because that has a big impact mm-hmm. on all this and the education side of things. And let's go for a second to the very philosophical baseline question. What are you paying for when you pay a tuition at a university? Well, in your in your comments, you said, is, are you just paying for a mark to take to an employer? And no, you're not. You're paying for a you're paying for an experience, but the experience isn't just the social experience of being on campus and the parties that, which is, you know, which is good. I'm not, you know, downplaying that. But what I am, what I do want to point out is you're paying for that experience that of, of being uh, enculturated into a, into a learning and intellectual culture so that you, you develop the habits of mind and you develop the abilities to, to learn and to think and to, um, grow into whatever kind of profession you might be interested in. And I don't think you can do that without the structure of university learning and, and the guidance that you get from, from university uh, instructors and, from the, and just from the way curricula and courses are structured and organized. Okay, so, uh, so clearly it's your view that it's better, it's a better system, it's a better learning uh, atmosphere if you're on campus with people in, in human contact. Is that what you're promised, though? I mean, as part of university, uh, that, or a certain style of education, a certain style of delivery, is that mm-hmm. assumed, or can you have a great education online? Well, this is it. You can have a great education online. First of all, let's remember that the that the measures being uh, undertaken where some universities are going to be online or such as the University of Waterloo, a, a large portion of courses will be online in the fall. These are temporary. These are the universities and the colleges aren't saying we want to do this all the time. But let's let's not forget, if we didn't have the ability to do online teaching right now, students would have nothing in the fall. They would have no educational opportunity. Because they, where would they go? And 15 years ago, if this if this pandemic had happened 15 years ago, students would have would have been left in the cold. They would have been they would have been really out of luck because there was you know that was just when when really good online teaching and learning started at, at uh, Canadian universities. So when we think about what's the what's the quality of education, it's the where we have to shift from a classroom space to an online space. We, we know how to create good online spaces for good online learning. And I've been teaching online for, for these past 15 years, and I know that my courses are giving students a quality education. There's no doubt about that. 
Yeah, I, I I would suggest uh, professors are supposed to be pretty smart people, and I think as a rule they generally are. <laughs> well, um, if they can't figure out how to teach a class online, I'd be pretty surprised. I mean, these are not idiots that we're saying here. Try technology for the first time and use your simple mind to accommodate this. These are smart people. I have no doubt that they can figure this out. I, I think you're right. I mean, now that that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be some. Um, kinds of, of, of courses or kinds of learning um, situations that are going to be more difficult. Think of, think of colleges, for example, that are teaching trades. Very difficult to yeah. do that online. Medical schools. Think of medical schools, any kind of, like at University of Waterloo, there are a number of courses and programs where there's a lot of clinical and experiential kind of learning that has to take place where you have to be somewhere and have to be doing something. Yeah, that's that's going to suffer in the short term over a period of a, let's hope it's just a, a term or two. Right. Um, and as soon as, you know, the pandemic is over, but, but, but even there we can create learning opportunities that while they won't be perfect, they'll be a far sight better than what would be the alternative, which would be nothing. So yeah, I, I and, really and do take the approach of the glass half full here. And the demand or the request that students have that is we need to have a deduction in our tuition, uh, there may be something to that. But here's the other thing is that, and again, I don't know what kind of promise. It's been a few years since I was at university and I don't remember reading the small print. What kind of promise there was of a certain type of learning. For example, if I, if I saw that a class last year had 20 people in it and I thought, I'm going to sign up for that because it's going to be very intimate and I'm going to have one-on-one basically with the prof. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, that class the next year, 400 people sign up for it and it's put into a lecture auditorium. Do I feel I've been wronged and I deserve some money back? Because that's not what I thought I was signing up for. And I would say, I don't think that answer would be yes. I think that would be no. You've taken the chance. You're still getting your education. It's just not exactly as you had anticipated yeah. it would be. Yeah, I, I see your point. But look at it from another angle. Let's say you had uh, you you have to take courses that are very large. Say you're doing an intro to psychology, which at University of Waterloo is hundreds of students. And then you and so you're not going to have much interaction with the prof. You're going to see the prof lecture at the front. You're not even going to have an opportunity to interact with students in the class uh, because it'll be, you know, it's probably in a, in a theater where you can't really get students to kind of group into small groups to discuss this or that point. When you put it online, you can create those small groups so students can have that peer interaction, which is proven to be an excellent way to get students to analyze material and to learn from it. In addition, you can have much greater interaction with the prof. When I teach an online course, I interact with each one of my students because at some point I need to discuss something with them or I, I point out something to them or I have that kind of interaction. When I'm teaching them in a, in a big lecture hall, where's the interaction? And could so we the, all? So, oh, you, no, no. Ahead. I was going to say, could we also make the case that um, if you have online classes where you have to make the, you have to have the discipline to roll out of bed and turn on your computer and check in because you know you're not right there. There, to me, there is also a positive side here because it's a little Darwinian, and the students that are at university because they're not really interested in being university, but they're there for other things. Uh, you may separate the wheat from the chaff a little bit and the people who really want to learn are probably going to learn just fine. Well, I mean, that could be the case that, that 
the, the yeah the, the students who want to learn they'll learn in any kind of situation I think because they have that they have that drive and that motivation. But one of the things to remember is that um, uh, in like in, in at the university when you have a course that's taking place in a classroom, it's it's the normal thing for, for to happen is that during the term attendance drops off, meaning that you might start with 100% attendance at the beginning of term. And by the end of term, you might be having 60% attendance. And if that's happening, then you have to ask yourself, so that 40% of, of the students, they aren't engaging with the, with the instructor in the, in the sort of the core learning opportunity of the course at all. Online, it's always available to students. And it's always there for them to work on. And so it, 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 there, there could be with good design and good interaction opportunities, there could be greater engagement for students in an online course. You mentioned a second part. So the education component of this is certainly uh, is certainly key. And for the students, that is really what they're concerned about. The second part of this is, um, you mentioned that salaries, professor salaries make mm -hmm. up something like 70% of the budgets of well, schools. All, all I'm, staff. All staff, pardon me. And I'm reasonably sure that the professors will not be lining up eagerly awaiting a pay cut during this pay period, during this time. <laughs> so a reduction in fees, if you were to give it, could put schools in a really tough situation. But I mean, financially, this could put schools in a really bad spot. Well, and that's and that happened last year with the uh, with the government's um, uh, tuition uh, reduction and tuition freeze. That is uh, that's already put universities into a tight spot, and so this makes it tighter for sure. And I I'm not arguing that students shouldn't question what what are they paying for. And I would hope that universities can be very transparent and really show students what the, where the money goes and what, what value they're getting for what they're paying. But the, but the fact is, is that the universities are, are not uh, in a healthy situation financially. Didn't we last year, or was it two years ago now, but the Ford government allowed for students yeah. to opt out of clubs and other things. That's well, right. there, there's a place where you're going to save some money right now. I mean, I don't know if that exists all across the country, but uh, for Ontario schools anyway, if you're not on campus, okay, so I can eliminate those things and save some money already. That's there. There's a start. That's one thing. And the, an, an even better approach is to, is to encourage universities and colleges to make use of what are called open educational resources. And these are freely available quality educational resources that can replace textbooks and, and more the commercial textbooks and more expensive um, materials. And, and the, 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 the number of textbooks and, and uh, resources that are part of this open educational resources system are growing, their quality is first rate, and and that can save students. You know, the universities estimate that students pay between like around fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a year on textbooks and supplies and things like that. That's one way to reduce costs for sure. There may be no choice though, and the reason I say this is uh, we're hearing that there are polls, and I had someone on the show a couple days ago. Uh, an education mm -hmm. expert who has collated a bunch, I think 18 different polls, surveys of incoming first year students and their families looking at their thoughts mm -hmm. on whether they want to go. And as many as 50% of incoming first year students are saying, I may be looking at deferring until next year so I get the full experience. If that number is even remotely accurate, schools may have no choice but to say, 
we're going to reduce your costs only as a as an in- incentive to say don't put it off we'll give you you can pay less you're going to get less but we're going to cost you less and you can get in your get your education going yeah and i i i understand that like i understand why students would and students or, fa- or their families might be really reluctant for their for their kids to go to to go to to go to college to go to university i can understand that um, my concern would be what would they do in place of that i you know if i were if i don't have kids but if i had kids and they said to me dad should i go to school in the fall or not under these circumstances i'd say i'd encourage them to go because i'd remind them it's only going to be for the fall term winter term it might change that we can be back on campus or you know perhaps the following year but it's going to be a short-term thing, we hope. And I would hate to see them lose out on, on a... I'd hate to see them just sit in the basement for a year. I don't think there are going to be a lot of jobs for kids to go and take up. Uh, the idea of having a gap year where you can travel or something, that's pretty unlikely. So I would I would prefer to see uh, students go to university. I, I would suggest, okay, so don't take a full set of courses, maybe five courses online in one term, as a, as your start university, that might not be very pleasant, but take two or three, get your feet wet, get a couple of credits under your belt, start seeing what's, what's going on in terms of the type of, uh, the, the type of learning that takes place at university, which is you know far different from high school. I, I would also, I would, if I was I would, a student who was on the brink or just on the edge of, if you're looking to get into a really tough course, man, I would be trying right now to see, are there openings this fall to, you know, if I'm on the edge of getting into medical school or getting into some place that's that's tough, I, th- th- there may be an opening there for some people who might not get accepted otherwise to find their way in. That could be. I don't know what, I haven't seen any of the information on what the uh, acceptance rate is, et cetera. And we really won't know that until, you know, September when you, when you actually do people show up virtually or whatever. We won't know that until September. But yeah, I would encourage people if they're, you know, they could they could certainly go to universities or colleges and see what's available. Can they get into things that perhaps they might not have gone into sooner? That might be a possibility. We only have a few moments left, but where does this go? Mm-hmm. And my 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 thought is on this one: it goes nowhere. Where first of all, you can't have. I would say, well, students might demonstrate on campus. Well, they can't do that, so so the schools <laughs> don't have to worry about mass congregations of angry students with placards. Um, and you could say, all right, what am I going to do? Boycott university? Well, first of all, are you really going to give up that chance? And our society has basically said, you got to go to university or college. So that's a I mean, it's almost a necessity. I just, I, I don't see what these students, um, what their fallback plan or what their, what, what they could do to enforce this other than say, I may not be happy, but here I go. Yeah, I, 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 I feel badly if they do feel unhappy. I would, I would feel badly if they felt unhappy about going to university under these conditions, say as online courses only and thinking, oh gosh, I'm not getting my money's worth because I'd, I'd really want to, to understand, but you will be getting a good education. The education you get will be will be top notch. I really believe that because I know that the the colleagues and the people putting courses together, they 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 want to give students a good education, and they will and they will do everything they can to do that. Will it be exactly the same as what they would have had on campus? No. Will it fulfill all the expectations a person might have had about going to university? No. But will it be a good education? Yes. 
James Skidmore from the University of Waterloo. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me and have a nice day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Diana Weeks in the news booth is singing at the top of her lungs going full Whitney. Did you hear me? Am I right? I had my mic button off. Maybe I didn't. Oh, no. The entire city heard you and it was beautiful. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Diana Weeks. Who knew uh, if, you know, depending what happens in future, if we need a guest or a fill-in, we'll just have you come in and sing some Whitney for us for half an hour. Absolutely. Do a concert. Absolutely. 100%. Let us, uh, let me switch over now to one of Diana. See, Diana, uh, most of you know this. Once upon a time in a past life, not that long ago, Diana used to work at CHCH. Let me bring in one of Diana's former colleagues from CHCH, our good friend Bubba O'Neill, who, uh, He's got a few hours left before he has to go on and do the sports. Bubba, how are you today? I'm I'm baffled. I mean, in the years that Diana worked here, <laughs> I, I don't seem to remember her ever belting out any Whitney Houston songs. I I just don't I don't remember that. I didn't oh. know she, she must have a, a hidden talent that I mean that, that now that radio is bringing out in her. It, the, you know what? It, the mood has to strike me right, Bubba. So you know, it's it's very rare, but sometimes it does happen. I think you're too busy singing the blues about your Cleveland Browns. <laughs> I'm used to it by now. <laughs> it's I'm, I'm not also get told any though, better. I know, Bubba. I'm also told though that before going to full Whitney, that uh, that it was more Snoop Dogg that she would do. That, that there was a lot of you know that going on. So she's transferred over to the uh, the more melodic stuff. Yes, uh, I, I, guess, I do. Yeah. I guess the station change has really changed her. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Bubba O'Neill. Bob O'Neill, let me uh, let me ask you about this. Uh, perhaps the strangest story in the world of sports that I have heard in I don't even know I don't even know how to quantify this. We saw this video come out, this short clip on Twitter last week or the week before of Mike Tyson working out, look, seemingly in his living room or something with a guy. He was hitting the pads and uh looking honestly pretty impressive to be you know no question i mean he's 53 years old but he looked like he was hitting those pads with some viciousness and you went huh but he's 53 years old and then he gave some inclination some some answer to someone that yeah i'd be interested perhaps in coming back and having a charity match with someone well yesterday or the day before suddenly another video emerges this time of evander holyfield 57 years old working in the gym and finishing his clip by saying, I'm back. And now everybody's saying, oh, here comes fight number three, Tyson versus Holyfield, combined age, this time 110 years old. <laughs> Is this really possible or are they having us on? Well, if they are, they're certainly having some fun with us, Scott. I mean, this to me is... Uh, I back you with my opinion to you and many others that will listen, <laughs> and I say that loosely, that this is the biggest joke of all time. And I think it's a, a fun that, you know, maybe that these guys are thinking about, if they're even thinking about making any return to the ring, and I'm not even talking about them facing each other. Um, this, will, this, this, will be, this will prove to me what train wrecks we are as people, quite honestly, <laughs> that we would be interested in watching a 53 and yet, and a 57-year-old 
in the ring. Now, you know, given the fact that these are two former heavyweight champions, one one of the most devastating punchers we've ever seen in history, and the other uh, a two-time champion, three-time champion um, that's uh, won an Olympic gold medal. These guys had their prime. I mean, but Mike Tyson hasn't fought since 2005, hasn't won a fight, I believe, since 2003. Um, and Evander Holyfield's 57 years old. So I give them credit for getting themselves in incredible shape. Um, if this is the kindness of their heart that they want to box a couple of tin cans for, for charity, I think, okay, so be it. I won't be watching. Um, because I think it, it, I'm just not interested in seeing two people that are well past their prime in the ring. You won't be watching, perhaps. You won't be watching, perhaps, but I would make a bet with you right now that if these two guys announced that they were coming back, it would be the biggest pay-per-view buy of the year in any sport. And I'm not just talking about the fact that it's because of coronavirus and nobody is out of the house. Pick your year. It would be, if not the biggest of any year, it would be very close. There would be a curiosity beyond curiosity to see these two guys go at it again. What is the curiosity, Scott? The curiosity to me is like, we've seen these guys at their prime. Why do you want to see them at this advanced age? I mean, again, and like I said, Mike Tyson has not fought since 2005. Uh, last time I checked, that's 15 years ago, right? Yeah, and, but you and, know what? The and, last and and that's great that we've watched them in, in in workout videos. And yeah, Tyson he looks fantastic because he did chunk up a little bit. Evander pretty much maintained his body size for since since uh, not fighting. Um, but we're looking at some aspects of boxing that they had already lost near the end of their career hand speed, the ability to think what you want to do and then translate that with your punch. Um, footwork, there's so much that has been lost over the years that father time and, or mother time takes away from you. That, that, that these will be a shell of what we once remembered them as. Yes, and that said, the last time uh, that Ro- Sylvester Stallone played Rocky in the ring, it was a huge hit movie, and and the idea was ludicrous that this, I don't know how old he was, 55-year-old Rocky Balboa got in with the young, uh, I can't remember who he was fighting then. Was it uh, was it Creed? Was it Creed's Drago? kid at that point? I don't even know. Drago's son, whatever. Um, but, and, you know, like, but people love the idea because they love the train wreck, they love the underdog, they love all this stuff. And don't forget, there's another video that came out yesterday in which 51-year-old James Tony used to be called Lights Out. Now it'll be Lights Out at 7.30. Um, he's getting up there. He wants back in this. We could be, Bubba, we could be seeing the beginning of an old-timer's boxing circuit. It's like the nursing home. They push the wheelchairs and the rocking chairs back, and they say, okay, two of you guys, go to it. I mean, th- I, and I will bet you this is not the last. I bet there will be other fighters who will say, wait, if they can do it, I'm back in too. Well, each to their own, right? Okay, I'm not telling you what, or what these guys can do individually or not. I'm just telling you that I'm not interested. And, and I will go back to my original point, that if people are actually interested and will put down, I mean, you have to believe that if you're going to do a, a pay-per-view, the minimum would be 49 so 50 bucks. If you're willing to slap down 50 bucks to see a couple of guys with a combined age of 110 years old in the <laughs> ring, well, good on you. But I won't be spending that money. I'll put, I'll put it somewhere else. I, again, and these are guys that I, whose careers I have watched extremely closely. Mike Tyson is a guy that I would say, oh, gosh, I mean, what he fought, 50 fights perhaps? 
early, very, very early in his career, I had read an article about him in Sports Illustrated about this guy they called Kid Knockout. Uh, so yep. I would say about five or six fights into his career, I started to travel across the border to several places in Niagara Falls, New York, to watch him fight on the old USA Network, which I don't even know we still exists. I follow this guy. I, I, I mean, the youngest heavyweight champion of all time. We've also seen him in the train wreck. Robin Givens, um, attempted suicide attempts, drug attempts. We've, well, then we saw the turnaround. We saw the end of his career. Then we saw the beautiful turnaround with him kind of becoming this nice Mike Tyson. The, Cuddly the, Mike. The, the one that ended up in that movie, The, the Hangover which sort of revived his career. I mean, if, you know, if, if I remember correctly, he, he did a sort of tour where he talked about his career on stage, and that was interesting. I, I, I was all for that stuff. But in terms of going back in the ring and fighting competitively, Scott, to me, that, that you're talking, I mean, I, I don't know, if, I think train wreck is an underplay. Well, and it's not just him who did it. I mean, it's been so long since they fought that Tyson, yeah, Tyson did the tour and all that kind of stuff and did a show that I think HBO had where they, they taped that. Um, about seven or eight years ago, Larry Holmes and Lennox Lewis and Evander Holyfield and George Chavallo did a Night of Champions in Hamilton. I was lucky enough to emcee that. And that was seven or eight years ago, as I say, and those guys seemed old then. And now Holyfield is thinking about, I mean, it. it is stunning. And two things. First, when you mentioned about Tyson, the last time he fought, people forget this because he really was, and we can have this discussion, where he ranks at his absolute peak, where he ranks in the pecking order of all-time great heavyweights. We can talk about that later if we want. But his last fight was against a guy named Kevin McBride, who was a journeyman at best, and Tyson didn't answer the bell for the seventh round. He was done. He was completely done, and the guy who beat him was an absolute nobody. Nothing, nothing against the, the country of Ireland. Heck, my last name's O'Neill. But when you lose to the Irish heavyweight champion after the greatness that he went through, that tells you the state of his career at that point. Well, and the big thing that seemed to be gone with Mike Tyson, what made Mike Tyson great, besides his skills, because lots of guys have skills, there's got to be something that, dis- in any sport, there's got to be something that distinguishes you from your peers if you're going to be the best. And Mike Tyson was he was a ferocious, furious, angry fighter who could scare the snot out of everybody else before the fight even started. And by the time he fought McBride, you could see that that fire was gone. That was completely gone. And if if you, Mike Tyson's not a big guy relative to heavyweights, and he was getting older, so the hand speed was going a little bit. And if you take away that thing that made him special, there wasn't a lot left, and I don't know how you suddenly, especially now that, as you said, he's become this cuddlier, friendlier, more uh, approachable Mike Tyson, how you recapture that to go back into the ring and try and do something again that's special. I don't know how you do that. You can't do that. You cannot bring back father time or mother time. It just You can't do that. Again, you're talking about a heavyweight. I mean, a lot of times if you go over boxing history, uh, even to a guy like Muhammad Ali, these guys peak in their late 20s, uh, 25, 30. Mike Tyson, his peak of his career was, as I said, 19 years old. He's the youngest heavyweight champion of the world. And he had a, about a two or three year, I mean, just era of invincibility. And, you, and you're right. 
one of the things that we all, and one of the reasons why I used to cross the border, border to see these fights was to see, I mean, in, in fact, many of these fights would end up being one round, two round, three rounds maximum, was the incredible knockout power. Right, we just can't see that any longer. And yes, that's great that we're watching these videos and going, "Wow, he looks great." Well, of course he looks great. I mean, there are things you can do nowadays. The training is so much better than it is now. I'll also introduce to you something that you know I think is a reality for a lot of uh, pro athletes or athletes or even you know older men, especially to keep in good shape. We've seen this with Sylvester Stallone. Is the is HGH, right? The, the, this is this is helping a lot of these men look the body beautiful at, at such an advanced age. But at the end of the day, I would rather see them just sitting in there and talking about the old days more so than actually going in the ring, Scott. It's just, I, I, you know, and, and, and another thing too, like wh- whoever these guys fight, if they don't fight each other, which I certainly hope they don't, th- these will be carefully crafted opponents that they put up against these guys. And, None of us, will, even people that know boxing, will know anything about the history of these people that they put Mike Tyson or Evander Holyfield against. Well, they'll know them. They'll know who those guys are. But Tyson, I don't think Tyson or Holyfield will know much about whoever it is that they go no, against. No, Scott, no one will know. They, they will be, you could put Mike Tyson or Evander Holyfield against the 50th-ranked boxer in the world, and at this point, who are much younger, and, and they would win, and they would beat these older guys. Oh, no, no. Sorry, I'm saying the younger boxer will know who Tyson or Holyfield is oh, if yes, you put yes, them yes. in there. I'm talking about the viewing public. No one will know oh, no, who the, these the, people are. The, um, the videos of... Here's the thing. The video of Tyson, which got this whole thing started that got so many people talking because he looks, again, he looks terrific in this video. Now it's probably what, eight seconds, seven seconds. So we don't know if this was the best seven seconds of his whole training regimen, or if he could do this over a round or five rounds or 12 rounds with 10 rounds, whatever. We have no idea. And there's no, there's no one else in the video. So we, he looks fast and, and certainly the sound of him hitting the gloves is impressive but there's nothing there that gives you a context to know how he's doing. The flip side is watching the Holyfield one. Yeah, he can still skip rope. When he was hitting the heavy bag, Bubba, he looked plodding. And I, I honestly, if they were to ever fight, I'm not really worried about Mike Tyson getting hurt. And I don't even know that Tyson wins the fight because he could gas out in 30 seconds. But I still think Tyson may be able to punch. I don't even think Holyfield has that. And I'm like, is there any state athletic commission that's going to license a fight with a 57-year-old fighter? I mean, beyond beyond the idea, is there anyone that's going to do that? Well, it's an exhibition fight, so I don't know what the what the um, exact requirements are, say, but there will be a state somewhere, right? Like whether it's Las Vegas, New York, Florida, there will be somewhere that that will be because they will see money coming out of their ears, right? As you 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 they might see blood coming out right? of their ears. Someone someone will sanction the fight. So I, I'm not worried about that if that happens. But again, these guys, again. Yeah, and they, hey, let's be honest, too. You're right. We've seen these videos. Uh, I believe the Holyfield one was 21 seconds. Uh, the, the two, there's two Tyson ones, actually, and they probably equal 30 seconds. And the second one with Tyson, yes, I thought it looked a little bit better because he had a trainer with her, with him that was swinging punches. He was ducking, moving, uh, bobbing and weaving and throwing punches. So, uh, again, very choreographed. Um, 
but I think if any of us were in tremendous shape and we could find some great people in a gym nowadays that could have simulated the same thing that we just saw with the same amount of power, you're, 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 you're very correct in bringing up the fact that we don't know what kind of endurance these guys have. So I, to me, there's just too many question marks. There really is. And the other part, and we only have a couple minutes, but the other part about this that I just, I, I, I would watch. I'm not going to lie. I, I would find my curiosity would be just out of control to watch it. But when I saw the video then of James Tony, who who had a very good career. I mean, this guy was not maybe a Tyson or a Holyfield, but he, he was a good heavyweight. Those two, those, two, those other two. And he was a good heavyweight. Uh, there were, when he started talking and I didn't hear a lot of James Tony interviews before, but you've got the sound of a guy who's been a boxer in his voice, the beginning of it. And I'm thinking as much as this could be fascinating, it's all fun and games, literally until someone is permanently disabled. And then do we say, well, that was great. Or do we say, what in the world did we allow that to happen for? And, you know, I, I, Boxing is always one of those sports that I watch with a little bit of my teeth gritted because I love the sport, but now that we know about CTE and concussions and everything, I always, it's in the back of your mind. And with some of these guys that have already taken the punches they have, it's like, do we really, even if it's fascinating, do we want to encourage them to get back into the ring or do we say, guys, you did your thing, you made your resume, you had your career, you made your money. Let's leave the rest to our imagination. Let's make a video game. We'll have we'll have animators figure out how this would have gone. Now, these guys have already had their legacy made, and and they're part of history in the sport already. I mean, these are Hall of Fame boxers, and you know, like you think you bring up James Tony. You know what his nickname was, Scott? His nickname, and he was and he fought actually as a middleweight, I believe, when he was at his at his prime. James Quick Tony. I, I I think you'll remove the t- the quick <laughs> once you see him in the ring at this point, even at you know fifty one years old. Yeah, it's uh, it's a fascinating thing. I again, I, I probably would find a way to watch the the Tyson fight if he were to come back. Um, but I it was. It's it's such a hard one. It's such we a hard can't one because stuff like this, Scott. I I don't think we can. I don't think we should. And I can't. I'm not into telling people what to do. But at the end of the day, to me, this is just this. This is it, we've, we use the bubble. We use the cliche all the time. But if you announce to people on your newscast tonight, if you were prescient enough and you had the ability to look into the future, and you said, when NASCAR comes back. The first race is going to have a 45-car pileup with three cars bursting into flames and two flying through the air upside down. Guaranteed, you would have the highest rating of a NASCAR race ever, and that's exactly what this would be. I think it says something about us. Not sure what it is, but... um, Anyway, uh, you can catch Bubba O'Neill tonight at 6 or sometime after 6 on uh, CHCH for Sports. You can see him tonight at 11. And... Bubba O'Neill, Rick Zamperin from CHML, Steve Milton from The Spectator, and I go to YouTube, look for Home Games Hamilton. Um, we do a series of videos there on various topics, a great debate series. Uh, we did one on this very topic with uh, the other guys on Mike Tyson. Go check that one out as well. We'd love to have you take a look at that. Bubba, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having me, and uh, take care, guys. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. Thank you for being here this week. Thank you for being here today. 
uh, to the guests, to the mayor and all the other guests that we had, to Will for pushing the buttons and keeping us going, to Liz for lining up the guests, uh, to Scott Thompson for letting me sit in. I feel like I'm giving an Academy Award speech at this point. To Doug Ford for sharing stories about his cheesecake. Uh, to Diana Weeks for singing along with Whitney Houston. Uh, and for you for listening. The most important one for you for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay safe. Enjoy being outside. Don't be an idiot. We will talk to you soon. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.